Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kettley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 20 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be interviewing Eli Kintish. Uh, he's a uh, reporter for Science Magazine and has also written for Slate, Discover, and The New Republic. And his new book is called Hack the Planet, Science's Best Hope or Worst Nightmare for Averting Climate Catastrophe. It's sort of about the um, extremely ambitious, extremely risky geoengineering schemes that are being proposed to address climate change. And uh, there's a back cover blurb that says, Hack the Planet reads like a sci-fi novel, but it's all the scarier because it's true. Yeah, so geoengineering, for those of you who may not be familiar with the term, uh, um, you know, you're probably familiar with terraforming, which is a sort of common trope in science fiction. And uh, so geo geoengineering is kind of low-scale terraforming here on Earth, um, whereas terraforming would typically be um, extraterrestrial planets. Like we, we've we often seen terraforming done on Mars and, and other planets on our solar system and, and also in uh, on exosolar planets. But um, geoengineering is strictly trying to save the Earth from the damage we've done to it here and... Uh, Seems like a seems like a great topic for us. And so so I'm really looking forward to talking to Eli Kentish. And then stick around after the interview when John and I will be talking about climate change in fiction and terraforming. All right, let's get Eli on the phone. Hello? Hi, this is Dave and John with Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey guys. Thanks for joining us on the show. Sure. Uh so so first of all, uh just how did you get interested in science and how did you become a science journalist? I had been um, one of those kids who did really well at high school chemistry, probably because I had a great teacher and kind of responded to his energy and, you know, grew up in a house where we watched Mr. Wizard instead of the A-Team and read, you know, books about kids who were into science as opposed to, I don't know, Hardy Boys or something. But in college, I found that I was much better at explaining science and writing about it than actually focusing on one small piece of research and one little type of protein and studying it for a long time. Okay, so are you a science fiction fan? And if so, uh, who are some of your favorite science fiction authors? When I was a kid, I used to read uh, you know, all the Isaac Asimov books and Ray Bradbury. I did read a number of the climate, kind of climate porn uh, <laughs> novels which are out there. Uh, I was hoping to get them into my book and it didn't really go that way. There's Kim Stanley Robinson has written a number of them. His sci-fi usually has sort of scientists in a central role, and a number of his books, you've got climate-related disasters or countries try geoengineering with different side effects, um, and I thought they were, they were awesome. Okay, so uh, what are some of the absolute worst-case scenarios for climate change? The essential problem is that we don't know how sensitive the planet will be to a given amount of greenhouse gas that we put into the atmosphere. We know in the past there have been some pretty serious consequences of a warming planet and consequences of large amounts of greenhouse gases. And so we see in the, in the fossil record evidence of massive warming periods with very rapid melting, you know, like a foot of sea level rise in a century or more, which for this planet is very rapid. Um, and we're now putting out more carbon than what caused that melting. We know that in addition to the Arctic melting even faster than we thought, you could have a loss of ice that's in glaciers um, around the world, and we, that's happening right now. So in a way, that's a worst-case scenario, which is already unfolding. But the real worst-case scenarios have to do with tipping points, which it would be almost impossible to, to sort of get the planet back. And one of those is methane release, if you had... Uh, release of methane that is stored right now in the ocean as so-called methane hydrates, or if it was held in permafrost, which is frozen soil, um, as the planet warms, more methane is released. As more methane is released, the planet's warming is accelerated, and it's kind of a, a spiraling feedback loop that you can't get out of. Um, finally, you know, other worst-case scenarios are are sort of mega droughts, you know, on the scale of the the Dust Bowl that the United States experienced in the 30s or worse, you know, and, and obviously the destruction of the rainforests because the rainforests, like the methane, hold an incredible amount of warming potential. And if temperature increases, it could cause the, um, the rainforest to die, then you could 
obviously accelerate global warming. How did you get interested in geoengineering and how did the book project come about? I was invited to a meeting in 2007 that was meant to have these outsiders, scientists who were interested in this radical idea called geoengineering, uh, meet with some of the most prominent climate scientists uh, in, the, in the U.S. And the meeting was held at Harvard. And before that meeting in November of 2007, I didn't know what the word geoengineering meant. And I'd been covering climate for a couple of years. It was just so marginal an aspect of, of the field. And at that meeting, to everyone's surprise, the sort of grand poobahs of climate science decided that no, instead of shunning this outside group, they would embrace the idea of studying geoengineering for a variety of reasons. That started my interest in this, in this frightening and fascinating field. Uh, so uh, what are some of the geoengineering options that are being considered? Um, there's two basic categories. One type of method has to do with removing carbon dioxide uh, directly from the atmosphere, enhancing the ability of the planet to do so. And so this might be done by growing giant algae blooms in the ocean or enhancing uh, the ability of, of forests to take in uh, carbon dioxide by some way. Or it might be actually building machines which directly filter the sky and remove carbon dioxide directly uh, from the atmosphere. So those are the carbon-sucking methods. Those get at the, the root of the problem, which is the greenhouse gases, which are warming the planet. But there's another way, which is even more radical than that, in which case you would actually cool the planet directly by blocking a certain fraction of the sun's rays from striking the Earth. And so this could be done in a number of ways. You could uh, make the roofs of buildings or make roads brighter, more white slightly, to make the, Earth, the Earth's surface more reflective. Or you could brighten clouds, which would make the natural reflective quality of sea clouds you know, more robust. Or you could actually directly alter the stratosphere, the upper atmosphere, um, by adding particles which would cool the planet uh, directly. And those particles would mimic the cooling effect that volcanoes have. So the volcano in, in Iceland was too small to have a, a cooling effect on the planet. But other volcanoes, like Mount Pinatubo in 1991, have an appreciable cooling effect. And so what I call the Pinatubo option would be mimicking this cooling effect of volcanoes. Okay, so in your book, you bookend each chapter with an anecdote about humans attempting small-scale environmental engineering and making a hopeless mess of it. Uh, could you talk about some of those examples and why you chose to include them? There are plenty of examples of humans trying to alter natural systems, but failing to do it in a sustainable or wise way. And some of those examples were because we just didn't know enough about the systems to intervene, and other examples are just because maybe it's impossible sometimes to know how a complex system or an ecosystem might uh, react. One of the examples was in an experiment in the Amazon, the question was, does drier soil um, mean less carbon emissions? Because there's the fear in the future that as sections of the Amazon die, it'll mean less rain for those sections and therefore drier soil. And the hope was that the drier soil would mean less emissions of greenhouse gases from the soil, like methane and other, other and nitrous oxide. But in fact, for whatever reason, as they dried the soil by basically putting giant tarps over sections of the Amazon, they actually got more emissions more greenhouse gas emissions. So not only would you kill the Amazon and maybe lose the carbon in the trees, but you might have uh, carbon from the microbes. Another example would be the famous using tires from cars to make these man-made reefs off the Atlantic shore. And this was touted as a great way to remove waste from landfills and, and town dumps. And uh, you put these tires to good use, but in fact... The tires got loose, and they destroyed everything in their path. They came up on the shore, and you still, to this day, have you know prisoners from prisons in, in <laughs> the Carolinas having to go clean up these tires on the, on the beaches. Oh, I mean, so what are the implications of that for these ge geoengineering solutions? I mean, how badly could things go? It's hard to know. I mean, I mean the tires are an example. We've got a very simple system. You know, you're just putting tires into the ocean to encourage fish to, you know, have a habitat, and you have this unintended consequence. And also, it's, it's much more difficult to clean it up rather than it was to, you know, to make the mess. And so I think the fear with geoengineering is that some of these methods, we may have what former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld 
called famously unk unks, unknown unknowns, which are implications of our actions that we just don't foresee. And if you can't foresee them, then you certainly can't plan for fixing them in the future. I mean, you also talked about sort of if we were to deploy the Pinatubo option, we would be committed to sustaining it indefinitely. And if we were to stop it abruptly, it would be worse than doing nothing at all. Right. One of the fears about the Pinatubo option is if you do it while you continue to put uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, you're basically cooling the planet by reducing sunlight slightly, but you're setting it up so that if that sunlight was to come back, you would get this big jump up in temperature. So one of the unintended consequences might be that you would actually put yourself at risk in the future for you know, this big spike in temperature. Another issue uh, with the Pinatubo option is that it turns out that if you reduce the amount of sunlight striking the Earth, you would probably reduce the total amount of precipitation, rain, around the Earth because the solar rays provide the energy which drives rain um, because of evaporation. And so it's unclear how doing the Pinatubo option in different ways might affect rain. Who are some of the more colorful characters that you encountered in the course of researching the book? Well, I thought it was very interesting as I looked into this that it turns out that geoengineering is not a new idea. Not only have humans thought of altering weather and changing the climate and controlling the atmosphere as part of kind of myths and fiction and legends for centuries, but climate scientists, even some of the most important climate scientists, um, have been thinking about this since the turn of the century. I mean, you have um, the Swedish physicist Svante Arrhenius, who was the first to kind of nail down the connection between atmospheric carbon dioxide and rising temperatures. I mean, he was saying in 1908 that we ought to burn fossil fuels in a, quote, virtuous, close quote, effort to increase the planet's temperature. I mean, he was from Scandinavia, and he wanted a warmer climate. And then by the same token, you had the Soviets in the 50s and 60s, you know, trying to kind of, as they put it, conquer nature. And some of their finest climate scientists were thinking of ways first to melt the Arctic, and then later with the Pinatubo option, possibly to protect it, you know, through different, different geoengineering methods. Finally, to this day, I think it's notable that one of the most prominent advocates of geoengineering was uh, the father of, of the hydrogen bomb, uh, Edward Teller, who in 1997 had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which he argued that geoengineering was a better option for controlling the climate than the Kyoto Protocol. And I'd say that one of the reasons that we've had so little interest in geoengineering up until, you know, I would say two, three years ago, is that, you know, Edward Teller kind of uh, pissed in the pool for, <laughs> you know, for scientists who might have had, you know, less radical views about it. You, you mentioned that people from cold countries might want to warm the planet. I mean, that's a possibility you bring up in the book that countries might have competing interests in where to set the thermostat. And I was just wondering, sort of what are the likely scenarios? What kind of country might go ahead with unilateral action on geoengineering? This is such a new field. No one knows what, what countries would do and how people would consider this. But I think the United States has already shown they're interested in doing it. Uh, we certainly have experience as a culture, you know, with sort of large-scale messing with the planet. Um, we had atmospheric tests of nuclear weapons. We've transformed much of the American West and much of California. So I think the United States has that sort of attitude towards nature that we may well be willing to try this in the future. But other countries, I think also China has one of the largest weather modification efforts ever done underway right now um, to try to fix their, their droughts in the southeast part of their country. And the Soviet Union is certainly, I mean, the Soviet Union before Russia was one of the leaders in geoengineering. So there you have a kind of culture in place. Economist Scott Barrett of Columbia University, he thinks that India, facing the horrible effects of climate change in the future, may be the kind of country who would want to lead that, who would want to lead efforts to geoengineer. Geoengineering has also been discussed in recent books like How to Cool the Planet and Super Freakonomics. Uh, what did you think of their treatments of the subject? Well, I haven't read um, How to Cool the Planet, um, but I did read Super Freakonomics. And in my book, I take them to task because they got a lot of the science wrong. I think one of the reasons that the Super Freakonomics authors, who are interested in economics mostly, seem to be drawn to geoengineering is because it allows them to focus on the effect of global warming as opposed to the cause. And so as I write in my book, you know, they focus on the idea of temperature 
and say that global warming is a temperature problem. Well, global warming is a lot more than temperature problem, and one of the main reasons, of course, is that it's connected to greenhouse gases, the most important one, which is carbon dioxide. And so I felt that super freakonomics misused the idea of geoengineering to kind of change the focus of what climate change is about from carbon dioxide to, to temperature. Two science fiction authors you mentioned in your book are Carl Sagan and Michael Crichton. Uh, what role have they played in the conversation about climate change? Michael Crichton, he wrote a whole book, um, State of Fear, in which he tried to say that like radical environmentalists in the future would create environmental disasters, you know, to like create fear around global warming and raise money. Um, I mean, in general, Crichton had this kind of um, schizophrenic relationship with science. His, his thrillers were full of science, but he has an inherent distrust of scientists that they'll do the right thing. Um, and so from that perspective, he felt that the standard consensus views on global warming and on carbon emissions were faulty. As for Carl Sagan, I simply pointed out that there was interest in the 50s and 60s, not only in sort of hacking the, this planet, but also hacking other planets, because at the end of one of Carl Sagan's um, sort of early papers, he was in his 20s when he wrote it, he was doing an early paper on, I believe it was Mars or Venus, and he talked about changing that planet's atmosphere by um, messing with certain chemicals in, in, the, uh, in orbit around uh, Venus or Mars. So in science fiction, a common trope is the terraforming of extraterrestrial planets. Uh, if we manage to save this planet, do you think that the geoengineering techniques we're learning now can be adapted to actually terraform other planets? Yeah, I mean, our atmosphere is obviously very different to other planets. I don't know that much about the other planets, so I certainly don't know much about terraforming. I mean, there's been this... I think one of the main themes of my book, though, is that there's nowhere to go in terms of taking care of this planet. And some people are against geoengineering because we say that we've we've messed with planet Earth for too long. We should stop. Um, obviously, the problem with that argument is that if geoengineering techniques could eliminate suffering, is it really ethically correct to avoid them? But the idea of turning around and trying to trying to change another planet's temperature seems to me sort of the ultimate hubris. I mean, we're... <laughs> We have enough trouble even incentivizing people in this country to, you know, make biofuels without causing food riots in Mexico City. And given that experience, it seems unlikely that at least, you know, for the next 50 years, we would be able to reliably alter another planet's temperature or, or atmosphere in some sort of predictable way. So, so, you, so you mentioned that climate change is this very scary, depressing kind of subject. I was just wondering, how has it affected you personally, writing a whole book about it and doing all this research on it? I mean, one of the most striking things to me about geoengineering is it brings home the extent to which scientists are feeling a little desperate and a little, I mean, I think there's a lot of increasing fear among the, the, the scientists who understand the planet most. And that's the reason that some scientists have started to embrace this radical idea of cooling the planet directly. That That meeting at Harvard I mentioned in 2007 was very personally affecting to me because you know, why would someone consider a crazy idea like geoengineering if they weren't either crazy or facing a serious, you know, serious risks of worst case scenario in the future? Since I knew that these scientists weren't crazy, in fact, they were some of the most sober, thoughtful um, researchers I know, that made me worry about how severe the crisis was. There are conspiracy theorists who are convinced that geoengineering is already happening. Um, have you spoken with any of those people? Or, and if so, what's your take on them? I think it's a bunch of baloney. Huh. Uh, there's you know, enough trouble in this country just to, uh, I don't know, deliver school lunches. It seems <laughs> unlikely that, that we would be able to you know, engineer some sort of massive conspiracy among thousands of government agents sworn to secrecy to, to cool the planet directly. And it's just not true. It's just not happening. This is the chemtrails conspiracy theory. I think the most interesting thing about the chemtrails conspiracy theory is it shows that there's a real distrust of the government. And I think that since geoengineering envisions these massive solutions, even if they were deployed regionally, I mean, trying simply to cool the Arctic, for example, I just know that there would just be massive, massive inherent distrust of any sort of large-scale program supported by governments or what have you. I mean, it just, you know, I think interest in so-called chemtrails to me predicts a really messy process in the future for dealing with difficult environmental challenges. Uh, could could you talk a little bit about the way that geoengineering has been embraced by people who don't want to cut carbon? 
I, I think what I've noticed as I write more about this is that geoengineering allows a number of arguments about climate change that are, you know, most convenient for those who are against cutting uh, emissions. So with geoengineering, for example, you can emphasize the temperature aspect of the problem. Like I said, with, with um, you know, the super freakonomics guys, there's the idea that if you could, quote, solve the temperature aspect of the problem, then you wouldn't need to get at the root of the issue, which is our, you know, carbon-heavy lifestyle. And if you extend it out and look at other aspects of the problem that have to do with geoengineering, you know, there's this question of cost. So geoengineering might be um, applicable on a global scale at a fraction of the cost of transforming our energy systems around the world to, you know, more sustainable solutions. But that is a misleading comparison, as I make clear in my book. And so to say that geoengineering is cheap and mitigating climate change by changing our energy systems is expensive is a grossly simplifying argument. It's true on the first order because you can deploy the Pinatubo option fairly cheaply, but we don't know about the side effects and we don't know how long it would take to keep going and we don't know if it would work. We don't know about associated costs that we don't know about. We do know that you know there are lots of side benefits to, to transforming our energy, our energy system. So uh, you know, I went to college in Maine, which is absolutely gorgeous in the summer, but extremely cold for most of the year. And these climate change projections just kind of make me wonder: should I be buying land in Maine to to retire to? I mean, will it be temperate? And is anyone doing that sort of thing? I've always wondered if there's sort of climate investing going on. There's certainly investment in green technology by people who could care less about the world's climate. They just want to make money. So it seems like at some point you might want to start investing in sort of more temperate climates. You know, I would say Chicago is going to be a very popular city as people in southern cities find that the temperatures are getting hotter. I mean, I don't know about the worst case scenarios of climate change, but I think that it's pretty likely the temperatures are going to continue to rise. You're going to get more and more heat waves and more and more sort of you know, bad ozone days. If sea levels start to rise dramatically, would it make sense to build walls around coastal cities like Manhattan um, to keep the water out? They're already doing this in uh, Amsterdam. They're already doing that in London, raising things up. Around the world, you're starting to see adaptation to climate change. Even just eastern seaboard beaches are disappearing and no one's writing about it. No one's talking about it. Adaptation is a kind of response to climate change that's really interesting to me. On one hand, it allows people with money to kind of buy their, buy themselves out of the problem, but it's also limited. Um, so speaking of uh, rising sea levels, um, in the movie Waterworld, uh, the melting of the polar ice caps result in all dry land everywhere becoming submerged. Is that actually possible? Is there that much water stored in the polar ice? At the very worst case scenarios, um, you'd be looking at a few feet I believe, in, in this century. The question, though, isn't just this century. It's, you know, what our grandchildren, what our great-grandchildren would be sort of locked into getting. And what the scary thing is, though, it's not just the, you know, obviously it's the glaciers on the poles which have the biggest effect in terms of sea level rise, but you also have things like the Himalayas where glaciers are disappearing today, and those glaciers offer water to millions of people and so you've got a very, some very serious effects of climate change all around the world. Uh, so, so this next question is, is pretty speculative, but, you know, we're, we're science fiction guys here, so I figure I'd, I'd give it a shot. But So if, if rising temperatures are leading to rising sea levels, it stands to reason that falling temperatures would lead to falling sea levels. So if humanity ever developed a reliable means of cooling the planet, would it make sense to cool the planet way down in order to expose vast new island and coastal territories for human settlement? That's fascinating. Um, I have no idea how long that kind of thing would take. I mean, one of the problems with, with um, climate change is that even if you stopped emitting all greenhouse gases tomorrow, the planet's temperature would continue to rise, and that's for two reasons. The first is that the carbon dioxide would continue to stay in the atmosphere, and the second reason, it, it, it takes centuries for that carbon dioxide to get cycled out or taken up by the planet's you know, natural sinks. And the second reason is that if you take a if you're boiling if you're heating up water on the stove and you take it off the stove, its temperature would continue to rise. This is known as thermal inertia, and so the oceans would continue to warm up even after we stopped greenhouse gas warming. So to cool, if you were to cool the planet, you'd have to first finish with the notional the thermal inertia and then start cooling those oceans. And I have no idea. I mean, you guys are you've got some crazy ideas. <laughs> 
Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the way that ice that the ice caps get formed is that they it snows, and the snow lands on the the poles, and it it hardens and becomes either sea ice in the North Pole or, or Greenland, or it becomes Antarctica in the South. And so you'd have to have that. That process takes a long time. It's, it's a lot faster to melt the poles. So we may by we may have cold fusion and you know spaceships to go to other places <laughs> before we can start showing you know dry land. I gotta go in a, in a couple of minutes, guys. Sorry. Sure. No by the way, I forgot Douglas Adams. He's my all-time favorite <laughs> science fiction writer, especially given the name of the show. I'm really embarrassed. <laughs> Um, okay, so is there anything that listeners can do about climate change? Uh, you know, write letters, paint the roofs white, drive hardwood cars, anything like that? I mean, the most important thing is to ask your lawmaker to put a price on carbon as soon as possible. Obviously, if listeners want to reduce their own personal energy use, that makes a big difference. But the United States has to lead this process, and so the United States needs to cut its, its carbon emissions drastically, immediately. Otherwise, we're just basically rolling the dice, and we could get lucky, and the planet could be less sensitive to carbon dioxide and, and other greenhouse gases than we fear, but we could be unlucky, and the planet could be more sensitive. Okay, so uh, do you have any new projects in the works, and is there anything else that you've written that you'd like people to know about? I'm keeping a, a blog on, on geoengineering at, at um, hacktheplanetbook.com, and I'd love to hear people's thoughts on, on this radical new idea. Okay, well, Eli Kintish, author of Hack the Planet. Thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks, guys. I had a good time. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Eli Kintish for joining us on the show. Uh, so you, you might have heard there that, you know, we had to kind of cut our interview with Eli short a little bit because he, uh, he was fielding a lot of calls from, like, actual news organizations because uh, hmm. there was this gigantic oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So he was getting a lot of calls about that. So we really appreciate that he, uh, you know, took the time to to talk to us with all our crazy questions. Uh, but you know, um, kind of one of the themes of Eli's book is that a lot of times when people try to mess around with big engineering projects, they don't always go the way that you planned, and that that's something that we have to keep in mind when we're talking about geoengineering. And so the fact that we've drilled this gigantic hole in the bottom of the ocean and it's spewing up oil uh, that we can't now stop is maybe. Uh, a pretty vivid example of the limitations of human technology sometimes. Yeah, that whole uh, situation was just like so crazy when you read about it on the news and you see that, first of all, it's like going to reach the coast and it's going to kill all life in the Gulf of Mexico and it's going to, you know, ruin like the environment, like you know, that coastal areas that it touches. And then one of the proposed solutions was, why don't we set it on fire? <laughs> and I'm like, well, oh my God, it's like, if that's the best case scenario, like setting it on fire, oh my God, that just seems like the worst thing to do ever. Yeah, and apparently uh, BP is spraying like or dumping 250,000 gallons of chemical dispersant on the oil. And mm -hmm. I guess the dispersant is really toxic and who even knows what the effect of the cleanup operation is going to be. Right. But yeah, I mean, can you just imagine if we had implemented something like this on a global scale? And that's, that's kind of one of the things about the book is, you know... <laughs> Because Eli sort of, uh, in interviews and stuff, he, he talks about how people have this natural revulsion about messing with the geology of the earth. And I don't really have that natural revulsion. I always thought it sounded kind of cool because mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of hope that people are going to start cutting back on their lifestyles or anything. So I was like, well, you know, mm -hmm. we always have these geoengineering things we can fall back on as a last resort. I mean, I'm sure they'll have terrible side effects, but at least it's mm -hmm. something we can do. And after reading his book, I'm kind of like, oh boy, I don't know. These, mm -hmm. these things don't sound like they're particularly likely to work and may make things worse. You know, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't have that revulsion to the idea either. And But I always have sort of felt that it seems like the sort of thing that's like just so dangerous because like I think Eli said, right? I mean, it's like it's sort of the ultimate act of hubris. And I mean, it really is. I mean, it's like, OK, so you guys are going to just sort of decide to implement something that's going to affect the whole planet. And if it goes wrong, well, <laughs> what are we going to do then? Because I mean, we don't have anywhere else to go. Well, I mean, kind of one of the scary things he talks about in the book is that I mean, that the weather systems are also complicated, that we may never have any good idea of what the impacts are going to be. And mm -hmm. people are just get basically at some point going to have to flip a coin and just hope that they chose right. 
Well, I mean, you know, you can go and invest in your land in Maine, and, uh, you know, that'll be your gamble. You know, actually, when you mentioned that, that reminded me of uh, the first Superman movie. You know, Lex Luthor invests in property all along the San Andreas Fault in California, and then um, his plan is to set off a nuclear bomb to strike at some strategic point along along the fault. And then the idea is that when the bomb hits, it would sort of break off that piece of California that's on the coast, and it would sort of sink it into the ocean, thus making his San Andreas Fault properties beachfront property, which is a pretty ingenious scheme, although just seems really uh, logistically improbable. You know, he's such a genius. You think he put his mind to, to you know, he, he'd be able to make money other ways. I mean, because, like, that plan is all about money. I mean, given how, how scary and challenging this stuff is, I'm just glad we have people like Eli who are, who, you know, who know the science and, and are looking into this and educating the public and stuff. And, you know, it was funny when, when Eli was talking about how, when he was growing up, you know, his parents had him watch TV shows about kids learning science and stuff rather than watching just stupid crap like the A-Team all the time. I wonder what would have happened in like an alternate world, you know, like an alternate universe where he did just grow up watching hmm. stupid crap like the A-Team all the time. Like, what would he be doing now? You know, maybe hosting a podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah, because that's what happened to you. Right? <laughs> you didn't grow up watching any of that stupid <laughs> science stuff. You watched Thundercats and A-Team. and yeah, I could tell you all about the A-Team. Yeah, I bet. I pity the fool who can't. I don't know anybody about the A-team. But, you know, one of the things that we didn't get a chance to ask Eli about was uh, his thoughts about this. I mean, sort of the best-known movie about global warming, I think, was this sort of disaster flick the day after tomorrow. So I thought maybe we should just talk about that a little bit. Um, But I I assume you hated this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I hated it. Uh, I mean, that's a Roland Emmerich movie, right? I mean, I, I don't know that I've, like, ever liked one of his movies, so it was hardly surprising. Wait, what else did he do? Uh, you know, Independence Day and uh, Universal Soldier, and uh, he did that Godzilla remake, you know, mm-hmm. like 2000, and a bunch of other crappy stuff. Well, I actually liked The Day After Tomorrow more than I was expecting to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I probably liked it more than I was expecting to, but, I mean, my expectations were so low based on, <laughs> you know, previous performance uh, by this director. Uh, because it is, I mean, it, it, it succeeds in the way that a lot of this sort of disaster porn stuff succeeds you know i mean it's it's this grand epic um scope you know the world is being destroyed you see this uh like oceans filling up uh manhattan i mean you know that's kind of cool to see on screen but as a movie it's not particularly good well it it was kind of funny that it's such a hollywood treatment of global warming you Mm -hmm. know and it's, it's kind of funny that hollywood is almost like this big like meat grinder that turns out hamburger it's like no matter what subject you stuff mm-hmm. in the top it all comes out the same <laughs> that's a very apt analogy i have to say it's <laughs> and so you know you take global warming and stick it in the top and it still comes out you know like the first scene in this movie mm-hmm. is is pretty you know emblematic of what the whole movie is like but you know there are some scientists uh, like at the north pole i think doing uh, you know taking samples of the you know core samples of the ice and then like the whole continent starts splitting apart and they're like you're gonna have to jump for it <laughs> <laughs> You know, the movie continues in that vein where the the scenario is just a setup to have people jumping across gaps and running away from things and, you know, all the stuff you've seen a million times before in, in Hollywood movies. But I did kind of enjoy it. But I'll, I'll tell you what I what I liked about it. The thing I really liked about it was that the smart people are the heroes mm-hmm. and like the scientists are the heroes. So, I mean, basically you have um, Dennis Quaid, who's, a, you know, like a climate scientist, and then his son, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, who's like... He's with his like science Olympiad team uh, in New York. You know, you know, since you know, since my dad's a scientist, this is sort of something he's always kind of on about: is how often scientists are portrayed as just crazy psychopaths in in Hollywood movies, and how in real life, I think you know, more more often than not, scientists tend to be pretty uh, you know nice, reasonable people. And it's nice to see movies where where scientists are you know portrayed as heroes and where thinking and, and understanding what's going on or presented in a positive way because because that's another hollywood thing is that you know so often smart people are are portrayed as kind of like you need them along to mm-hmm. to hack into a computer or something but most of the time they just are just too analytical and and talk when really the solution can just be solved by shooting somebody mm-hmm. yeah stupid nerds really slow down the action <laughs> And and I always find it sort of dramatic when there are smart people and they've kind of figured out ahead of everybody else that something bad is going to happen. You know, the sort of Cassandra mm-hmm. effect. Uh, in, in, in Greek mythology, Cassandra was cursed by the gods to be able to foretell the future, but not to be able to convince anyone to, to do anything about it. 
So those just just those kinds of scenes where the scientists all kind of look at each other and and everybody else knows, <laughs> you know, there's bad news, but they have to uh, wait for the explanation to hear just how bad things really are. I always, I don't know, there's just something about those kinds of moments I, I like. And, and so there were, there were moments like that in this movie. And the movie did kind of actually have more science than I was expecting, you know, which which is to say I was expecting it to have none whatsoever. <laughs> and it actually kind of acknowledged science to the extent that it kind of gave it the finger as it was <laughs> speeding past. Uh, which, you know, but that was still more acknowledgement than I was expecting. Where, where, you know, so you did have characters saying things like, climate scientists always imagined that this change would happen over decades and not 24 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, in the movie, it's happening over 24 hours, which is, which is silly. But at least they're acknowledging that that's not, <laughs> you know, that's kind of not what mainstream science says. Mm-hmm. The author, Ben Bova, he, he sort of had predicted that the greenhouse, what, what he calls the greenhouse cliff, would, ha- would actually happen very quickly, like once it comes. And I mean, I don't know that it's like 20, over 24 hours or anything like that. But, you know, I guess a lot of scientists had, you know, for years been saying that it would be this very gradual process. And, and he had theorized that it would it would be more like a, a greenhouse cliff where it would sort of suddenly just be a, a, a very drastic uh, change. And, you know, he sort of explores that in several of his novels. But, um, you know, apparently the science is, is, is pretty accurate. And, uh, you know, his um, his press materials and whatnot uh, frequently trumpet that fact that he had predicted that that would be the case. And, and he was proven to be, you know, accurate. Okay, well, well, speaking of novels, I mean, some other novels we should mention are Kim Stanley Robinson's Science in the Capital trilogy, uh, consisting of 40 Signs of Rain, 50 Degrees Below, and 60 Days and Counting. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read these, but I, I gather it's, it's a sort of, it's a kind of similar idea to Day After Tomorrow, right, except dealt with in a sort of serious scientific way. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a pretty good um, description of it. I mean the, the it's it's funny the book covers even kind of look like the poster of Day After Tomorrow. I mean it's very uh, uh, very similar in the in the marketing. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's I mean that's basically it. I mean um, and, and it's it's treated in a very very serious uh, way. I mean it's very um, uh, very believable, very um, you know very well thought out. But you know I've I haven't read these books uh, and I, I would like to. I mean I think it's really important that books like this are being written. But just the news I read about climate change is so depressing. I'm not sure that for my recreational reading, I have that much stomach to, uh, to read even more about the depressing future that awaits us. And I, I sort of wonder, it seems like it seems to me maybe like the biggest challenge science fiction has ever had in terms of attracting readers. Like, how do you get people interested in reading literature about the future when we seem locked into a future, at least in our lifetimes, that people don't seem to want to think about? There's always been gloom and doom science fiction, you know, like, you know, 1984 and post-apocalyptic fiction and stuff. But you could always just put it down and mm-hmm. and think like, wow, that's that was really scary. But maybe that won't happen. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's kind of the point of Yeti DeVry's anthology Shine, which uh, came out, I think, this month or, or last month. And, uh, you know, it's, it's explicitly an, an anthology of near future optimistic science fiction, um, you know, not utopian, uh, but optimistic. So sort of a counterpoint to, you know, all the post-apocalyptic and dystopian stuff that uh, is much more prevalent and has been very prevalent over the last several years. I mean, in the last show we talked to Robin Wasserman about, you know, how, how there's this big boom in, in YA science fiction and, and much of it is dystopian in nature. And, um, and of course, you know, in, in the adult side of things, there, there was The Road and, uh, you know, my anthology Wastelands and, and there's a whole resurgence in, in, in post-apocalyptic fiction as well. So, an anthology like Shine, I guess, is in, in counterpoint to that. But um, I guess we'll see with this anthology how many people are interested in reading about it. Um, it just came out, so I guess it's, it's uh, too early to say. But, you know, it's been getting some good buzz. So uh, I'll be curious to see what, uh, what the results are. I mean, I do think that these sort of cautionary stories are important, too. And that's why, mm-hmm. that's why I say, I mean, I, I've heard my parents say that when they were in college, I think they went and saw Soylent Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if people don't know this movie, it's, uh, it's sort of loosely based on a Harry Harrison novel called Make Room, Make Room about a overpopulated, you know, ecologically devastated future. You know, conditions are, are so miserable that there are these voluntary suicide centers where you can just go and commit suicide kind of in a pleasant surroundings. And they show you pictures of what the earth used to look like when there was grass and hmm. blue sky and, and rabbits. And, you know, they play, uh, classical music and stuff and so my parents said you know they went to see this movie and then they came home that same night and signed up for the sierra club and planned parenthood Mm. uh so i mean i think it's really important that people are writing stuff like that and that it can make a difference but i need a break sometimes from this global warming future you know it's just it's a it's oppressive sometimes these these cautionary tales are important because you know 
they affect people like that. But then also, it's kind of funny that those same cautionary tales also sometimes serve, even though they sort of seem depressing on from the outside, a lot of times they can actually make you feel better about your own situation because you're like, well, hey, at least it's not as bad as that. I, I, I recently listened to an episode of... Um... The science fiction book review podcast that Luke Burridge does, and I haven't uh, I haven't read this book, but he was talking about Anathem by Neil Stevenson, and this is set hundreds of years in the future. And he was talking about how in the book they they kind of remember climate change as this horrible thing, you know, sort of like the way that we look at the Black Death in Europe or something mm-hmm. that it was really horrible to live through. But from the perspective of hundreds of years in the future, it's just kind of a historical footnote. And so that was kind of comforting to think maybe that. Yeah, you know, 500 years in the future, you know, it, it's perfectly possible to imagine a, a, a nice future from which, uh, you know, this stuff won't seem like such a big deal. Well, don't be too comforted because in that same future, they also lock away all the all the thinkers uh, in, in a monastery type thing and they leave all the idiots to just be out there in the world. So anybody who displays any sort of intelligent thought is, you know, sent away to a monastery. And so the idiots <laughs> rule the world. Well, now I'm all depressed again. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, when, when Eli was talking about the, the glaciers melting and, uh, you know, the, the water disappearing that, that the glaciers supply, it was, this is a little bit of a, a, a reach, but it was definitely reminding me of this movie, Ice Pirates. Mm. Have you ever seen this movie? Uh, I vaguely recall it, but, uh, you know, it, it was an 80s movie, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the prem- I love the premise in this movie, but the, the premise is that there were these big intergalactic wars that where all the Earth-like planets were all blown up. And so, so now water is a really scarce resource. And so one way of acquiring water is to, you know, go to you know, regions of ice and, and cut out big blocks and, of ice and bring it back and, you know, and, and get water that way. And so it's about people who, you know, ice pirates who come in and steal the ice because uh, it's, it's now the most valuable resource in the galaxy. And the movie has a lot of silly stuff in it. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty campy. But it, it is actually, it's a lot of fun too. But I've, I've always thought that was a great premise. Uh, so... I do rec- I recommend people checking out that movie. You know, in the interview when we were talking about um, when you were asking Eli if the oceans sort of receded and we could um, we could accelerate that process or whatever to sort of expose all the land underneath and then that and therefore you know provide other land that we can live on and, and sort of grow food on and whatnot. That just reminded me. There's there's this book called um, The Millennial Project, um, and its its subtitle is uh, Colonizing the Galaxy in Eight Easy Steps. So one of the one of the things they suggest in that book is that it, it would be possible to grow sort of artificial coral and build like artificial land masses on top of the oceans uh, using like this artificial coral. And like ever since reading that, I was just always thought that was such a fascinating idea. And and I never remembered actually really seeing it ever used anywhere like in science fiction. But yeah, the, but this book actually, um, well, it can kind of help us segue into the second part of the show for, with us talking about um, terraforming. So I mean, because obviously the book talks about terraforming, and that's going to be one of the major steps that we would have to take um, if we are going to colonize the galaxy. It was really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know how well the science has held up. I mean, I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry and it. It seems like the a lot of people have questioned various aspects of it, um, including the fact that the author, uh, Marshall Savage, he, he basically lays out all these scientific plans, but doesn't really give any consideration to the political and or the governmental uh, possibilities of, of how anyone could ever get together the resources and uh, get organized well enough to actually implement any of these things. But I mean, it's an interesting read if uh, you sort of want to speculate about how we might expand out into the galaxy. Um, but yeah, so let's let's talk about terraforming. I mean, um, I, I think first of all, I wanted to talk about it's kind of a bad assumption of a lot of old science fiction that every planet you would go to would just have a breathable, <laughs> you know, just have an atmosphere you could breathe and water you could drink and food you could eat and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Often aliens that you could talk to in English. And the first thing that you would do when you're, as a spaceman, when you get onto the planet to test the atmosphere to see if it's breathable, you take off your helmet. <laughs> and that's what you do because you wouldn't have any sophisticated instruments or anything on your spaceship that might be able to tell you what the atmosphere of the planet is and whether or not it's breathable. Well, there was a great moment in Galaxy Quest, uh, you know, which is a, a parody of Star Trek, where they land on this alien planet and the captain opens the door of the shuttle. And and one of the crewmen says, wait, wait, <laughs> is there even air out there? Have you checked? And the captain kind of sniffs the air and he's like, eh, seems okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, realistically speaking, very few planets that we're likely to stumble across are, are likely to have an atmosphere we can breathe, uh, particularly if it's uh, a planet that doesn't have any trees on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, one of the, you know, sort of one of the things you see a lot, like you see this in Star Wars, for example, is, is you have a desert planet or a, an ice planet. 
you know, which we, we presume the whole planet, say, is a desert. And, and mm -hmm. then you, it kind of raises the issue of, well, where does the oxygen come from? And Dune is kind of like this. I guess in Dune there is a, an explanation for this, uh, but it is the kind of thing, like if you're a science fiction writer or aspiring science fiction writer that, that you want to spend some time thinking about is, you know, how are people breathing on a, on a desert planet, for example? You know, of course, one of the one of the most frequently uh, discussed planetary bodies is, is Mars. Uh, when it comes to terraforming, I mean, that seems to always be the the, the go to thing to to consider terraforming. Um, I mean, we talked about this a little bit in uh, when we in episode eighteen when we were talking about Total Recall. I mean, in that movie, um, you know, there's this this alien artifact that was sort of designed to terraform the planet to give it atmosphere. Um, seems highly improbable <laughs> as discussed in the movie, but. The idea is not completely out of the realm of possibility, I think. I mean, at least it's like at least theoretically possible that we that we could do it. I mean, certainly a lot of science fiction writers have speculated on ways that we could. You know, we mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson earlier. Um, you know, in addition to that climate change trilogy he wrote, he also wrote uh, a Mars trilogy, you know, beginning with Red Mars. Uh, and, and so the series kind of goes Red Mars, then it goes to Green Mars and then Blue Mars. And as you know, as they're terraforming the planet, it be, you know, and now in, in, in this trilogy, you know, Robinson actually sort of addresses some of these concerns that people had with Marshall Savage's book on colonizing the galaxy in that, you know, Robinson actually does really go into the, he, he actually does like deal with like, you know, well, how will a society, you know, come together and actually implement an engineering project of this magnitude? And so that's like a large part of the series is, is, is all this sort of political stuff going on. Well, I mean, when you mentioned in Total Recall, how there's this machine that completely terraforms mars in yeah. like a minute and a half or something <laughs> i mean right. you know which which seems pretty uh, unlikely but uh you know before the show i was looking at the terraforming entry on wikipedia and they mentioned the genesis torpedo in star trek 2 as oh, an yeah. example of terraforming and i had never thought of that uh, yeah i mean that's ex explicitly what it was yeah right? no that's exactly it's, what it was but it yeah. ju it's just because it's because like, it happens you know so quickly you know i right. i just think of terraforming as, as being this really slow gradual process which you know realistically is is what it probably would be right but there was this episode of um star trek i think it was, i'm pretty sure it was star trek the next generation i saw where they had a, a character who was a terraformer uh, and he was a very sort of boisterous outspoken kind of larger than life personality and he said that you know you have to have that kind of personality to be someone who would think about remaking a planet. And so like when, when Eli said, you know, about the incredible hubris involved in terraforming, yeah. it made me think of that character and like, oh, that's something the Star Trek writers actually did pretty well is think about what kind of personality would you have to have to, to have that kind of a job. But speaking of like in Total Recall, that just reminded me of, uh, you know, another movie, um, you know, Red Planet. Um, I mean, if I'm remembering this correctly, you know, at the end of that movie, they like they sort of get into this like really disastrous situation. And then um, but then there was some, some sort of terraforming that went on or did they just sort of stumble into um, discovering life on Mars? And, and when their helmets open up, they're able to breathe. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, no, I mean. Was there, was there terraforming involved or they just sort of happened to stumble on some area of Mars that actually did have air after all? What, was that Mission to Mars? There were like two Mars movies that yeah, came yeah. out around the same time. No, no, that one was definitely in Red Planet. Okay. Well, Mission to Mars just doesn't have any anything interesting to talk about at all. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I mean, the way I remember it is they kind of come across this field of sort of alienish grass uh, that produces oxygen. So there's this kind of region where they can breathe. And oh, but there were some aliens, right? There, there, because I remember oh. this kind of alien who looked like that they meet. They can kind of meet, don't they meet kind of like a hologram of an alien who kind of looks like a badly done Nintendo <laughs> sixty four character? That sounds familiar. Yeah, but um, no, I remember. I mean, I remember when those movies came out. You know, like the sort of recurring Hollywood problem where you have one movie on on a theme come out, and then and then some other one comes out in like the same summer. And that, and that was the case with with Mission to Mars and Red Planet. And I was excited about both of them. And then like both of them are just so bad. I mean, or actually, well, I can't, I can't really, I don't really remember Red Planet that much. Um, but, uh, I mean, except for that one part, but, um, I was a big fan of uh, Mars by Ben Bova, which is not about terraforming, but you know, it's about the first main mission to Mars. And I thought that's what both of these movies would be. And I, you know, it's like, I was really excited to see something like that on film, but then they, they, they both went off into like, you know, sort of cuckoo territory, like, you know, in Hollywood, anything that's scientifically plausible is never enough. <laughs> it's like, you know, going to Mars is not cool enough. We've got to have all this other stuff that's going to trump just going to Mars because that wouldn't be awesome. I remember when those movies came out, I read a review of one of them that, that had this line that went, uh, boy, can't anyone on this planet read scripts? <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to recommend if we ever have a manned mission to Mars that we not bring along a robot 
that uh, if it gets bumped, it goes into kill all the crew member <laughs> mode. I think that's sort of a that was sort of an oversight on the part yeah. of the mission planners. Um, oh, I was going to say, like, you know, one one sort of alternate um, idea of, of terraforming, you know, like you were saying um, this there, in Star Trek, there was this really cocky guy. It sort of became like really routine to him, you know, where it's like, you know, yeah, it was like this. He's, he's like a fancy architect, basically. Right. But he's like really confident, like, you know, he's has no uh, worries about like ruining a planet or anything. So it's like become routine. And, and so that just reminds me, you know, like Rogers Lozny has, um, you know, he has some terraforming in, in like uh, in uh, in Isle of the Dead. Like, you know, they. Uh, you just call it worldscaping, so it's like um, it's so it's more like landscaping than actually terraforming. In, in that it's just so routine, it's like landscaping, you know. And, and and so they just sort of can manipulate the planet and you know however they want. You know, I don't know that. I mean, I don't. I sincerely doubt that you know terraforming could ever become so routine. But I mean, it's kind of an interesting. Um, an interesting take, you know, and, and I mean, I, I always kind of thought it would be cool to like, you know, if you if you were like so far in the future and you were able to sort of just manipulate um, environments and planets to that degree with technology that 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 kind of thing actually would it would become like art, you know, you know, that that would be the new way of uh, uh, of impressing uh, people with your creative abilities is, is, you know, oh, look at this wonderful planet I've terraformed. Well, when you say, I actually I hadn't thought of it until just now, but uh, you know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's the the Magrathians who make planets, and and Arthur Dent meets a character, Slarty Bartfast, who's who had he he had been responsible for the fjords, uh, mm-hmm. in Norway, uh, <laughs> you know, when they were making the Earth, and and he's always going on about how proud he is of the fjords and how he won awards for them and stuff. <laughs> and there's a yeah, part yeah. where actually they they go back in time and and they find the fjords with like Slarty Bartfast's signature on it, <laughs> uh, right. So it's that kind of idea. But but speaking of Zelazny, I mean, he has a, a terraforming story I just absolutely love uh, called The Keys to December. And it's kind of actually sort of ties into sort of some of the stuff Eli was talking about, because it's about sort of some of maybe the unforeseen consequences of geoengineering, terraforming kind of stuff. But so in this story, there are some uh, genetically engineered people who were designed to work on a planet, you know, with uh, that's really, really cold and I think has really high gravity or, or something like that. And so, um, but the planet that they were engineered to work on is destroyed, you know, like by a, a supernova or something. So they're left without anywhere that they can live except inside these kind of tanks. And so, so the protagonist manages to make a lot of money kind of investing in the stock market. And he decides that he's going to create a world where they can all live on. He's going to, ter- you know, terraform a world for this, that they can all live on. And so this, you know, this, this process takes you know, thousands and thousands of years. And so they all go into suspended animation and then they wake up every once in a while and kind of just check on how things are going. You know, oh, and they, they had picked a world, right, without any intelligent life on it. But uh, it turns out that as a result of the evolutionary pressures of their terraforming machines, one of the native species has evolved over this process into an intelligent species. Oh, but and if they keep going, you know, with their intended terraforming, the species is not going to be able to evolve fast enough. So they're going to have to wipe out this intelligent species to create the world for them to live on. Mm-hmm. And so it's just about kind of the um, ethical dilemmas that pop up in this situation. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the other um, interesting ideas I think there is in uh, in this kind of related to terraform is, in a way, it's kind of the opposite of terraforming. And and, and by you know, what I'm talking about is uh, when we alter ourselves, uh, you know, to to live on some other planet. You know, so instead of altering Mars, we alter ourselves to be able to survive on what Mars already has. That's sort of the central premise of Frederick Pohl's uh, Man Plus. Um, you know, so in that they transplant people into cyborg bodies that, you know, are able to survive on the Martian surface. Well, right. And of course, that brings us back to Paolo Bacigalupi's People of Sand and Slag that we talked mm-hmm. about way back in episode two. But I mean, yeah, I think that's a really good issue is is terraforming one of these just kind of cool science fiction ideas that's just never going to happen because some other technology like genetic engineering is going to advance to the point where it just makes a whole lot more sense to change ourselves rather than trying to change an entire planet. Mm hmm. But uh, I guess I just wanted to mention that the term terraforming was actually coined by a science fiction writer, Jack Williamson, uh, mm-hmm. in his story Collision Orbit, uh, published in Astounding Science Fiction in 1942. So kind of, you know, there are, there are a bunch of examples of this, you know, sort of like Asimov um, coining the term robotics. But I just think that's kind of cool that, you know, this term has uh, achieved such widespread use. Another kind of example of terraforming I wanted to mention is, uh, you know, I mentioned in the last episode that I've been rereading Gene Wolfe's uh, Book of the New Sun. And w- one of the things about Book of the New Sun, if you haven't read it, is that the narrator, it's, it's, in, it's in this bizarre uh, environment, you know, really, really far in the future. And, he's com- and it's completely strange to us, but it's completely normal to him. So he doesn't spend any time at all explaining what's going on. 
Uh, so you really have to pay attention and piece together everything just based on really subtle clues sometimes. Uh, but so there's this this uh, line in the first chapter where, where he says, the fog swirled and parted to let a beam of green moonlight fall. And so if you're just reading along, I mean, you might miss that. You might think it's just a bit of poetic license or something. But it turns out that the moon has been terraformed. So the mm. moon is green. So the light of the moon really is literally green. But you, you, know, you wouldn't uh, put that together probably until, until later in the book. You know, in an, in an earlier episode, you, we were talking about faster than light travel and mm. how, you know, it doesn't seem like that's really possible. And you were saying, well, that you would, would like to see more stories that were, you know, our civilization is stuck in our solar system and ends up terraforming every bit of, you know, yeah. land that we possibly can. And actually, I was thinking about, you know, the TV series Firefly. It seems like, it's, isn't that kind of that kind of thing? I mean, it's not our solar system, but it's it all takes place in one star system and they've terraformed every planet. Mm-hmm. Um what did you think? Like, what did you think of that in Firefly? And is that kind of what you were looking for? Or was, the, was there something more that you wanted to see? No, I mean that's the, that's the, that's generally the kind of thing. And one of the things I liked about Firefly was that you know there was no aliens in it. You know, it was uh, only you know people and and like the bad guys were those like those crazy people, the the Reavers. Um, I mean, they they were just human, right? I mean, they were just like crazy people. Yeah. Well, uh, like spoiler warning. Uh, yeah. Right. In the Serenity movie, we find out that they're the result of experiments being done by right. the. Oh, okay. You know, by the alliance on people, right? But yeah, I mean, there was no aliens or anything though, and that, I mean, that's one of that's one of my the my big things too is that like you know, it, it's much more challenging to tell a science fiction story without aliens. Um, you know, one of these far future ones that involves spaceships and whatnot. It's 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 challenging to tell it without aliens. But um, I, I mean, I think it's it, it definitely can pay it can pay off if you do it so if you can pull it off because I mean. It's just it's like aliens are too easy a crutch, and so is you know a limitless galaxy where you can you know use light speed travel to get anywhere and and have all these different things. But uh, yeah, no, I mean I hadn't I hadn't thought of that previously. That that Firefly is actually kind of a good example of that. Uh, and another example of terraforming I wanted to mention is Mike Resnick's Kiranyaga, and uh, sort of the premise of this is that it's a sort of uh, u- utopian thing where there's a galactic civilization and there are enough planets. And it's easy enough to terraform them that, that relatively small groups of people can kind of apply and they'll terraform the planet to look like whatever you want. And then you, you can you can live on it. And so the, the story is about a bunch of people who uh, want to return to kind of a traditional tribal African lifestyle. And so they have the planet terraformed, you know, to have African style savannas that they can live on. And I mean, there's a lot more you could say about the stories than we have time to go into here. But just on the subject of terraforming, I think that's kind of an interesting treatment of it, because I think most of the time when you think about terraforming, you just kind of imagine generic trees and grass and mm-hmm. things like that. And but no, you actually could make it look like particular envi- you know, recreate particular environments from all over the world on Earth uh, out in space. Yeah, I guess just just one issue I've seen discussed is, you know, is it ethical to terraform planets? You know, even if there's, I mean, obviously, if there's like intelligent life or, or maybe if it, even if there's life on them, you know, it, it's kind of an issue. But even some people, I guess, object to, to the idea of even just terraforming planets with no life on them because it's just, you know, it's it goes against nature or something like that. I, I don't actually really understand, understand this argument particularly. But uh, when I was reading about this, I thought Carl Sagan had kind of interesting point that, I mean, I'm all in favor of, uh, you know, sort of living in harmony with nature and stuff like that. But Carl Sagan points out that if we live in harmony with nature, the ultimate consequence of that is that the sun's going to pry our planet, you know, Mm -hmm. that in order to survive, this is obviously, this is in the very, very long term, but in order to survive, you know, we have to do something, you know, we have to uh, probably get off our planet and terraform something or build some habitat in space and stuff. And so we kind of on, on the human scale on our, in our human lifetimes, we kind of think of living in harmony with nature as, as something desirable and possible. Uh, and it, it was just kind of a cool kind of science fiction thing to me to think that, oh, no, but in the in the galactic scale, <laughs> we have no choice but to really, really mess around uh, with nature uh, if we want to survive. But um, I think the most uh, articulate proponent of this view that we shouldn't uh, terraform at all uh, is is one of my favorite scientists. Uh, his name is Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> and so he, he says, talking about life, he says, In my opinion, it's a highly overrated phenomenon. Mars gets along perfectly without so much as a microorganism. See, there's the South Pole beneath us now. No life. No life at all, but giant steps 90 feet high, scoured by dust and wind into a constantly changing topographical map, flowing and shifting around the pole in ripples 10,000 years wide. Tell me, would it be greatly improved by an oil pipeline? (laughs) Mm-hmm.
And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on Podcasts, and then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, Episode 20, and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Nnedi Okorafor, author of the novels Who Fears Death and Zara the Windseeker. Nnedi's parents are Nigerian immigrants, and she often uses Africa as a setting for her stories. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.